0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 48, A Disunited Front. We have no new Patreon supporters this week, but as always, consider pledging. Even a dollar a month makes a difference, and I will send you that great uh, History of Bansko miniseries. Also, I have gotten quite a bit of progress on the Volga Bulgaria miniseries. Not sure when I'll be able to finish it, but things are actually rolling there, so we can look forward to that. All right. Last time, we left off with the death of Serbian Tsar Dusan and the uncertain future of his 20-year-old son and heir. Bulgaria and Constantinople has signed an alliance sealed with marriage in an attempt to stop the growing power of the Ottomans as Orhan's eldest son, Suleiman leads raid after devastating raid into Bulgaria, eventually killing two of Tsar Ivan Alexander's three sons. And the Byzantines have emerged from yet another civil war and are desperately trying to claw their way Back to glory. In Bulgaria, Ivan Alexander was finally addressing the death of his eldest son and heir. With, as I mentioned, two of his three sons from his first marriage, Michael Asen IV and Ivan Asen IV, both dead, only his remaining son from that marriage, Ivan Strazimir, remained as despot in Vidin, running that territory semi autonomously. In 1356, he made his eldest son from his second marriage, Ivan Shishman, co-emperor, in spite of the boy's age. He was only about five years old. The reasoning for this was that young Ivan Shishman was born in the purple, meaning he was born while his father was emperor. This, alongside, you can imagine, some heavy, lo- heavy lobbying by his mother, Ivan Alexander's second wife, Theodora, not to be confused with his first wife, Diodora, put him ahead of his much older half-brother, Ivan Strazimir, who was about 30 years old at the time. So needless to say, Ivan Strazimir in Viden is not exactly thrilled at being disinherited. I mean, he is... I mean, if you want to look at the Born in the Purple thing, OK, you can take that into account. But the way most European states would work at this time, he is next in line. And in any case, he's the right age. He's very capable, he's already running Vidin, but he is ignored. He is kind of uh, pushed over. So, in response, Ivan Stratimir declares himself emperor. He declares himself Tsar in 1356 in Vidin, in direct opposition to his father and his half brother. In doing so, Stratimir becomes really more independent than before, founding the Tsardom of Vidin. Now, while Ivan Alexander didn't take any actions against his sort of rebellious son, in fact, he seems to have kind of allowed this declaration without saying much, Stratimir really needed allies. He needed to start building something if his Tsardom was going to survive. Wolakia was an obvious choice. He was, himself was the grandson of its first leader, Besarab I, and his father's remarriage would have seemed to move Bulgaria a bit away from its alliance with that state. Though, as far as I can tell, Valachia is still a vassal state of Bulgaria at the time. So, Stratsimir decides to marry his first cousin, because the Middle Ages never quite realized that marrying your cousins is not a good idea, to solidify his position. So, he's married into the royal family of Wallachia. I also want to take this moment to talk about the other territory that's kind of moving away from Turnovo, that is, the despotate of Dobruja. Now, Dobroja makes up a swath of territory leading from the Danube Delta all the way down along the Black Sea coast to the south. It had been semi independent within Bulgaria from around 1340, so 16 years, but it was sometime around this period that it became a full fledged despotate with its own navy and an independent foreign policy. Now, this happened rather gradually, but It was yet another example of how territories were breaking away from Bulgaria and Ternival's central control. Now again, with both of these cases, they're still both kind of technically part of Bulgaria. It's a little tricky to figure out their precise relationship to Ternival, like to what extent they were under Ternival's kind of thumb and to what extent they weren't. But what's important here is at least politically, kind of economically, that these these territories are moving away from Turnival. How far they are isn't as much important as the direction they're moving away. And so it's not good for Turnival, right? It's It's a weakening of central authority. Ivan Alexander is allowing all these things to happen. There's really no evidence that he lifted a finger to prevent these things from happening or to try to reassert central control, which so many of his predecessors had done. Right? We've seen this happen all throughout the Second Bulgarian Empire. You know, Little areas rebel and become semi-independent, and central authority, as soon as it can, reasserts itself. Doesn't happen here. Now, of course, Bulgaria wasn't the only state facing this kind of problem. We've talked before about how this was a fairly widespread problem in the Middle Ages, though, of course, with exceptions. So around the same time in Serbia, the young Tsar Stefan Uros V, was already facing some serious difficulties along the same lines as Ivan Alexander. He was 20 years old and, if we believe fine, quote, weak, possibly feeble minded, and unable to take forceful action against this separatist tendency. Quote. Right after he took the throne, there were rebellions in the Greek provinces by local Greek magnates who were, ironically, actually descended from the Asen dynasty in Bulgaria. Who wasn't? Uh, Stefan Uros V himself had eight or half of his eight great-grandparents being Bulgarian, so if you want to look at it that way, he was half Bulgarian himself. But these rebellions succeeded in bringing the Aegean coast away from Serbia, and this was followed by those same magnates swearing fealty to John V, the emperor in Byzantium. Thus, Serbia lost the territory and the Byzantines gained it without the Byzantines having to lift a finger and with the Serbians seemingly powerless to stop it from happening. Probably sparked by this early sign of weakness, Stefan's uncle attempted to seize the throne that year from his young nephew, but he was thwarted. Still, the uncle was able to retreat to Thessaly and Epirus, and continued to call himself Tsar there. This marked the beginning of a fragmentation of Serbia under Stefan Uros V's weak leadership. And, well, it's remarkable how quickly it happens, even though, frankly, it shouldn't be remarkable to us anymore. We've seen similar things happen over and over in Bulgaria. We have a very strong Tsar who expands the empire, brings prosperity, and that Tsar dies. And almost immediately, everything he built begins to fall apart. Time and time again, I've talked about this extreme fragility of these kinds of medieval states. And this is just another example of how dependent they are on their leader and the personal relationships that that leader is able to build and that leader's personality. And uh, yeah, just this very personal stuff. And so even the child of that leader often is unable to carry on the legitimacy and the power and the dignity and all the things that that ruler had, which kept the state together. But still, states were not the only thing that was fragile at this time. So were lives. Because far away, the elderly Ottoman Sultan Orhan was reminded of this, when in 1357 his son Suleiman Pasha fell off his horse near the Sea of Marmara and died of his injuries. Just like that, the young, promising heir to the throne whose devastating raids had made him the scourge of the Balkans, and Bulgaria in particular, was dead. His father was deeply affected by the loss. But he was lucky, he had another son, Murad, who stood ready to take the throne when called upon. Of course, in spite of this setback, Ottoman raids on Bulgaria continued unabated. There, Ivan Alexander was busy raising a new set of children from his second wife. One named Ivan Asen V, after his older half-brother who had died at the hands of the Ottomans, Suriman, who just died to be specific, was made co-emperor in 1359 along with his brother Ivan Shishman. We don't know the boy's age, but looking at how old the mother and Tsar were when they had been married and the fact that the the boy was obviously younger than his older brother, he also must have been just a couple years old, maybe five as well. Still, this Further reinforce the fact that Ivan Alexander was determined to set up his new children to succeed him. But if you've seen any movies or any dramas, almost anything about an elderly medieval ruler, you know that it's a problem when you try to sort of start a new family later on. I mean, I think I've mentioned it here before. My favorite film, *The Lion in Winter* from 1968, how. Uh, king henry ii wants to marry the young beautiful alice and have a new set of children because though he has three sons who could all inherit his kingdom he doesn't want to give it to any of them he's decided this and so he says to hell with it all i'll marry the girl and have some children with her ah but the king of france reminds him what if you have a girl it's possible what if you have another girl what if one of the children dies in infancy all these kinds of things could happen, and then what if he dies while his heir is still a small child? Someone could kill him, someone else could take over the throne. It's a dangerous business to try late in life, as a medieval ruler, to bring up a second family and raise a new set of heirs. But Ivan Alexander, for reasons when we think it was love, is trying to do this. But. Quite frankly, the Bulgarian Tsar probably should have been focusing elsewhere because Ottoman power was growing faster and faster. In 1361, though maybe as much as a decade later, the sources conflict a lot, the Ottomans conquered Adrianople, one of the most important cities remaining in the Byzantine Empire, and without a doubt, one of the most important cities in the Balkans. Now, what's super weird about this is that this seems to be such a pivotal event. Adrianople is a very important city, and yet it's barely mentioned in the chronicles, which is why the estimates over when this, uh, when this conquest happened vary as much as 10 years from each other. But whenever it happened, what's most important is that with this conquest, the Ottomans now controlled a major city in the Balkans, not just more scattered towns and fortresses, which they had had for a little while now. They have a city. But still, in the meantime, the Ottoman capital is still very much in Bursa, which is in Asia Minor, not too far from Istanbul and, well, Istanbul now, Constantinople, and the Sea of Marmara. There, in Bursa, a year after his son had taken Adrianople, the elderly Orhan finally died at the ripe old age of 80. His son Murad then became the third Ottoman Sultan. Murad was well educated. He'd grown up with the finest tutors in Bursa. But he was ultimately a man of action. Even before he took the reins of power, he was helping to spearhead Ottoman expansion, particularly after the death of his older brother Suleiman. So now, this man of action, this man who had led devastating raids in the Balkans, he was in charge. The man who took Edirne was in charge. So, Whereas the death of a Tsar in, say, Serbia or the death of, a, of an emperor in Byzantium in this era seems to always mean weakness and a difficult transition for the Ottomans. It meant an even stronger leader comes to the rise because Orhan was a good leader, but he was 80 years old. He, he had let, not left Bursa in quite a while. There wasn't so much he could do. So it's a dangerous shift for countries like Bulgaria. Now, one of the first actions of the young uh, Murad was to officially move the Ottoman capital to Edirne, which is what they began to call Adrianople. So this meant that the Ottoman capital is now, for the first time, and where it would remain for the rest of Ottoman history, in Europe. Now, this boy, Murad, he and his father, they may have been fighting Turkish tribes in Anatolia, I haven't mentioned that the Ottomans have expanded their territory in Anatolia quite a bit by fighting other Turkish tribes. But this move by Murad makes it clear that the ultimate aims of the Ottomans are very much in Europe. They're expanding in Anatolia, but that's a secondary concern for them. They want to move their capital to Europe. Europe is where they're raiding. Europe is where they're expanding. Europe is where they want their home base to be. So this is a very disconcerting shift, a disconcerting sort of change of events for Bulgaria, the Byzantines and the Serbs. Now, also, at some time early in his reign, Murad began to implement a system which would ultimately help really define this empire that he was building for centuries in the future. Because as the Ottomans conquered, as with most armies at the time, they took slaves, but remember, the Ottomans began as kind of a small Turkish tribe, which settled in Anatolia. They weren't like a massive, massive people group. The Turks as a whole were a huge group of people, but the Ottomans were one of many tribes. So much like the proto-Bulgarians, they had this problem. They didn't have the numbers to conquer and uh, expand and take more territory and settle that territory and do all of this only by themselves. They needed to bring new people into their group and especially into their military. Now, one way to do this was to conquer other Turkish tribes and sort of absorb them, which they did. But there were other solutions as well. Murad's solution was to impose a tax. Of all the slaves his army took, one of five of them went to him personally. Those taken would be converted to Islam and treated as an elite military unit of slaves personally loyal and owned by the Sultan. But bear in mind, these were slaves not in the American sense, where race kind of plays a role. Slavery in Europe and the Middle East is really quite different at this time. So don't think of these men as being sort of just horrible, downtrodden, you know, walking around in chains and things. That that wasn't really the, the idea of slavery here. But they became sort of a personal unit to the sultan. And we'll talk a lot more about them as the Janissaries, which is the name of this new unit evolves and it's going to change and evolve a tremendous amount for more than four and a half centuries of its existence but for now know that in the very earliest form the janissaries are being formed by murad so under murad's guidance the ottoman expansion continues with the conquest of philippopolis of course modern plovdiv you've heard me say many times in 1364. now this also marked a shift From the Ottomans raiding Bulgarian territory to outright conquering it. It was now clear that there were three major powers in the Balkans, excluding the Ottomans, and that all of those powers, the Byzantines, the Bulgarians, and the Serbs, were too weak to prevent this steady drumbeat of Ottoman expansion. By now, all three states saw the danger, but even alliances between them didn't seem to go far enough in opposing their collective enemy. I mean, to sort of drive their impotence home, at this time there's mention of a war between Byzantium and Bulgaria. Though The reasons for the war are very hazy, we don't really know why it happened, but we know there was some kind of a war, and the Byzantines captured the Black Sea port of Anchialos during the war. So, remember, just at the end of the last episode, the Bulgarians and the Byzantines had an alliance and a marriage And already that seems to have gone nowhere. And during this time, the Ottomans are expanding, they're taking Byzantine territory, they're taking Bulgarian territory, and there's almost no mention of the Byzantines and Bulgarians opposing them. They seem to be just doing as they please. And that is continuing on as the Byzantines and Bulgarians fight their little wars. But still, the Ottomans weren't the only enemy to be reckoned with. See, we haven't talked for a while about what was happening in the north, what's been happening in the north, so let's catch up a little bit. First, the Tatars, the Golden Horde, had recently entered a period of intense civil war. This meant that Bulgaria was unlikely to see any raids or alliances or really anything coming from there. Granted, they've been out of the story for a while now, but just know like they've been fighting wars with, say, Poland and Hungary, fighting each other. Things have been happening there, but they've been out of the Bulgarian and Balkan orbit for quite a while. Now, I've mentioned Valachia, which is a small and up-and-coming state, which had been ruled by Nikolai Alexandru following the death of the I until 1364, when Alexandru died and was succeeded by Vladislav I. Now, previously, Wallachia had been a vassal state of Hungary while retaining close ties to a Bulgaria. At this point, it seems to be a Bulgarian vassal, vassal. but as I mentioned before, its status is kind of difficult to fully understand, but know that Wallachia its sometimes a vassal to Hungary, sometimes a vassal to Bulgaria, but overall it's becoming a bit more independent and it has its own leaders. Another reason the Golden Horde wasn't really involved in Bulgarian affairs at this time was the gradual emergence of another state, Moldavia. Now, around the 1350s, Moldavia starts to appear and starts to be mentioned. It kind of begins with the Hungarians colonizing the area after defeating the Tatars in a war. But from the 1350s on, after this colonization to around this time, Moldavia is beginning to assert its independence from Hungary. So again, we're we're seeing the gradual emergence of both Wallachia and Moldavia, two states which, if you can look at a map, you can guess, will eventually become uh, Romania. So, Romania itself is very, very far away, but just know that these are the two kind of proto-Romanian states, and they're just now beginning to appear. So all this brings us to Hungary. Now, Hungary was experiencing another of its golden ages under King Louis I. Bit funny name for a Hungarian, but sure. Now, Hungary had been fighting wars all over Central Europe for years, but now it's turning its sights to the south once again. Now, remember, Hungary's been far outside Bulgarian affairs really since the beginning of this century, so it's been half a century since Hungary had much role in our story. If you forgot, the reason why was that there were some small border states that were established that really acted as a buffer between Hungary and Bulgaria. They didn't have a border anymore, and so this sort of discouraged them from interacting much with each other. However, during this entire time, the Hungarian kings had never let go of a title they'd claimed long before, King of Bulgaria. And so, well, they always felt they had something of a dynastic right to Bulgaria, and they never forgot that. Well, now they had their chance to do something about it. You see, since uh, 1363, Pope Urban V had been trying to gather European forces to combat the Ottoman threat. Good to know someone was doing that. He had convinced King Louis of Hungary to lead the attack with support of other states like Venice. Now in 1364, maybe 1365, Louis prepared his army and he led it south. Oh, but spoiler, he did not go to attack the Ottomans. This is a crusade after all. It's a you know Christian fight to go fight the, the, the Muslims, so heaven forbid it attack the Muslims. Instead, around 1365, Louis demanded that Ivan Stratimir, The ruler of independent Vidin, calling himself Tsar of the Bulgarians and the Greeks, became his vassal. Now, unsurprisingly, Stratsimir refused. So, that year, Louis invaded. The Hungarian army arrived at Vidin on May 30th. Stratsimir desperately sent word to his father, asking for assistance in relieving the invasion. But, the powerful fortress city fell in just four days, long before any relief could have possibly arrived in Tornful, though we really don't know if uh, his father would have sent relief if he had time. Uh, there's really no evidence or word about what Ivan Alexander's response was. So Ivan Sratimir was imprisoned in a cas- castle in Croatia, while Louis spent three months mopping up resistance and imposing Hungarian rule in the entire territory of Viden. And so just like that, Vidin is incorporated into the Hungarian state. And Franciscan monks were immediately sent all over the territory to begin the process of converting the population from Orthodox Christianity to Catholicism. Though, uh, spoiler alert, you can probably guess they did not have a lot of success. If there's one thing we've learned from the Byzantines is that Orthodox Christians do not like the idea of becoming Catholic. Though they did evidently convert Ivan Stratsimir and his family themselves to Catholicism while they were off in Croatia, though we sadly don't have any details about just how that happened. And so while Vidin was nominally independent prior to this, it was still technically part of Bulgaria, and an important part. And it was now lost. And Ivan Alexander, as I mentioned, really seemed powerless to prevent it. There's no evidence of him doing anything to prevent the loss of this territory to the Hungarians. And to make it all worse, again, all of this was originally intended as a crusade to attack the Ottomans. So instead of going to attack the Ottomans, the crusade only manages to weaken Bulgaria, one of the frontline states opposing their expansion. But Louis wasn't completely against the idea of attacking the Ottomans. He would just consider it in his own time and for his own reasons. Now, to help him make this decision, in 1366, he was visited in his capital of Buda, now the half of Budapest, or a third if you want to be technical, by none other than the Byzantine Emperor John V himself, in person. The emperor made it clear that it was vital to mount a serious resistance against the Ottomans, and that his own state and his neighbors simply couldn't do it on their own. Now, Louis, without a doubt, he must have understood the seriousness of what the Byzantine emperor was asking of him, because no Byzantine emperor in the history of that state had ever left Constantinople to ask for foreign assistance like this. Sure, his predecessors had asked the pope for existence, which prompted the First Crusade, but this was something different. This wasn't sending a letter. This was personally traveling. Still, Louis... You know, he was probably somewhat moved. Uh, Evidently, he was offended a bit as well by the Byzantine emperor's uh, kind of conduct. But he wanted to get something out of the deal. And that something was, you can probably guess, the same thing that the West has always wanted from the Byzantines in exchange for help. The unification of the Eastern and Western churches. In exchange for that, help was promised. However, the Pope made it clear to Louis that aid should not come until the emperor kept up his side of the bargain. So, knowing the history of such deals, you can take your bets on what the outcome is going to be. So, he waited for John's side of the bargain to be taken care of. He waited for unification to happen. and In the meantime, Louis headed to Transylvania to oversee operations against Moldavia, which had, as I mentioned, kind of pushed a bit for its own independence. He was also organizing more forced conversions to Catholicism in Wallachia, Serbia, and ongoing ones in Vidin, which, as you can imagine, were really upsetting local populations. In the meantime, Emperor John V was heading back home and was captured and imprisoned by Bulgarian forces. Now, the reasons for this are a bit hazy. Byzantium and Bulgaria had recently been allies and recently fought. The Byzantines were trying to entice Hungary, a Bulgarian enemy, to get involved in the Balkans and the fight against the Ottomans. Generally all these events make the precise relationship between the two empires difficult to understand, but you can kind of understand why Ivan Alexander would be quite mad at John V. So the kidnapping of these clarifies their relationship. He was pretty mad. And so the emperor is in prison and his 18-year-old son Andronicus IV and his Bulgarian wife remember that marriage alliance they start running things in Constantinople now the bad news for Bulgaria is that at this time when they captured the emperor a man named Amadeus IV Count of Savoy now Savoy is a territory which is now part of the Holy Roman Empire which is kind of along the modern French Italian border so Amadeus IV and the Emperor uh, of Byzantium are cousins, and Amadeus had already left Venice by ship and was on his way to help crusade against the Ottomans. When he reached the Dardanelles, he was joined by the Emperor's son-in-law and some other Byzantine forces, and they mounted an attack on an Ottoman, Ottoman position in Gallipoli and managed to capture it, declaring it the, quote, first and most famous victory against the heathen Turks, end quote. Now, Amadeus had to decide what to do next. His cousin, Emperor John, was requesting military assistance to free him, but the Pope had not authorized him to attack Bulgaria. However, Amadeus made his decision and sailed his forces to the Black Sea to attack Bulgaria. One by one, he took the Black Sea fortresses from Suzopol to Burgas to Pomorie to Mesambria, which is now Naseber, and in Naseber, the population resisted and was put under siege. The fighting was fierce, but the city did fall, it was pillaged, and its population was slaughtered as punishment for their resistance. Now, to be clear, at this point, the crusaders were attacking the Despotate of Dobre, and which was a vassal state of Bulgaria similar to what Vidin had been, though again its level of independence is a bit unclear, with some sources describing it as being more or less fully independent. But in either case, that's who they're attacking. and. Now, interestingly enough, Dobruja had moved its church to be part of the Patriarchate of Constantinople instead of that of Turnovo. So it had kind of yeah moved its Orthodox Christianity towards Constantinople. Uh, that also a move that kind of signaled a level of independence. It traded extensively with Venice. It helped supply vital grain to Constantinople, uh, especially during famines there. Its capital was Kavarna, which wasn't the largest city, the largest city was Varna, but this was a pretty thriving and important place, and a place that was actually somewhat close to Constantinople. But still, it was invaded like this. And the next step on that invasion path was itself Varna. So moving up from the Sever by ship, these crusader forces reached Varna and demanded that the city surrender. But the citizens refused. They sent word to Ivan Alexander to release the Byzantine Emperor and end the conflict. While waiting for a response, the Crusaders took some other fortresses and territories along the coast, and, during a period where they seemed to have gotten bored, some Crusader knights went inland and attempted to take a fortress in the middle of the night. They were discovered and massacred. Although he had not authorized the attack, the leader of the whole expedition, Amadeus, retaliated by slaughtering the population responsible. Clearly, waiting for word of the Emperor's fate was not helping the Crusaders focus, keep discipline, or morale. Finally, after almost a month, the Crusaders withdrew to the Then, at this moment, Amadeus received word that the Emperor would be set free. His soldiers spent the winter at the Black Sea waiting for his arrival. When he finally came in December, they all left for Constantinople together around January of 1367, leaving garrisons behind to retain the territories that they had conquered during this portion of the Crusade. Within weeks, however, the citizens of Imona, one of the territories that the crusaders had taken, rebelled. Now, I couldn't find anything about the rebellion being put down, so I guess they must have rejoined the despotate of Dobruja. not quite sure. But in general, some uh, historians kind of argue that this whole thing was actually concluded with Ivan Alexander being paid money for the territory that he lost. But frankly, I find this quite implausible. I mean, the Byzantines didn't have a lot of money. The crusaders, as we'll see, did not have a lot of money. I don't know why they would have bothered to pay Ivan Alexander for all of this, so I don't quite buy that theory. But anyways. Back in Constantinople, Emperor John agreed to cover the entire cost of the campaigns against Bulgaria for the Crusaders. didn't have a lot of money, but he wanted to do that. Now in theory, this means that it's now time for Amadeus to return to the crusade against the Ottomans. However, in practice, his forces were quite diminished and exhausted by the campaigns against Bulgaria. Now, he did manage to capture one more Ottoman fortress and burn a few others, and resistance. he also helped resist an Ottoman attack on Suzopol, but still, by this time, his main concern was getting him and his men enough money that they could buy their way on ships and return home. In the meantime, while he was in Constantinople, Amadeus did lobby for church unification, but again, we can all guess that it wasn't going anywhere. Within months, he was on a ship back home, and that was that. Another crusade, over, and accomplished very little, frankly. It's like so many of the crusades before, this ended up spending more time fighting Christians than Muslims. Though that was, you could say, partly the fault of Bulgaria. But still, is this inherent tragedy that in the face of the growing power of the Ottomans, this intent kind of uh, effort to stop them... To end up attacking mostly Bulgaria. And, well, on that down note, that's where I'm going to leave things with the conclusion of the so called Savoyard Crusade, the ever weakening of Bulgaria under Ivan Alexander with the loss of Vidin and possibly Dobruja, with Serbia, well, I didn't have time to talk about it, but you can guess, steadily getting weaker under the ineffective Tsar, uh, Tsar Stefan Uros V, and Hungary exerting itself in the Balkans again after half a century away. And, as always, the Byzantines getting weaker and weaker and weaker, taking a bit of territory, but not really making any advances. Still, time hasn't run out for the Balkans yet. But the sand in the hourglass is falling, minute by minute. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, успех, or in English, good luck.